Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. We believe in the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. It is the Word that comes from God. And if that's not enough, it is the Word that leads us to God. Are you ready this morning to hear from God? And even more so, are you prepared to be led to God? And as believers in Jesus Christ, where else or to whom else would we want to be led? So with that, let's read God's word together. Would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's word as I read Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. 
but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've flown in an airplane, you probably have heard something like this before takeoff. There are several emergency exits on this aircraft. Two-door exits in the front of the aircraft, two window exits over the wings, and two-door exits in the rear of the aircraft, because we're flying on a Boeing 737-300. Please take a few moments now to locate your nearest exit. In some cases, your nearest exit may be behind you. If we need to evacuate the aircraft, floor-level lighting will guide you towards the exit. Doors can be opened by moving the handle in the direction of the arrow. It's important to know, in case of an emergency, the way out. And not only how to get out, but the quickest way possible that you can find to get out. And if you do not know the way out, if you are prevented from exiting, there's another word that we use for that. We say you are trapped. How many people in our world today feel trapped? Maybe you feel trapped even this morning. For one reason or another, rational or irrational, and to different levels of degree regarding desperateness, many people can feel like they just want out. They think to themselves, then I will be free. Then all of my problems will be gone. Then all of the stress and anxiety that is weighing me down will finally fall off of my back. Then all of the depression and despair and darkness that has set in will be relieved and will be removed once and for all. Then I will really live and be alive. That's why one airline uses the slogan, want to get away? Do you know why that's effective? It's generally effective because everyone wants to get away. Everyone wants to get out. Everyone wants to escape. Everyone wants a vacation from their problems. So then, do you think a book that's entitled Exodus has any relevance for us today? Exodus means exit or the way out or escape, or go forth out. And it comes to us there in verse 4 in chapter 1, particularly from the Greek translation, and it's what Pharaoh saw was a problem. The Israelites could potentially exit. They could exit and join their enemies and then work against them, fight against them. And so the second book of the Bible has become known to us as Exodus. And it intersects with our lives and speaks to every life. And it deals with every person and leaves no one untouched. If the desire for exit or escape is rather common among people, it leads us to another question. Why? Why do people want out? What is it that makes them so desperate? It is that they are trapped, and they are trapped in misery. Do you know misery? Are you miserable? 
If you are, let me say something to you. You're in the right place. Not because we want you to be miserable, but because we don't minimize you being miserable and because we want you to know that you do not have to stay miserable. There is a way out if you are trapped in your misery. And the way out is good. There could be many reasons why you are miserable this morning. And I don't suppose to know all of the intricacies of why you might be miserable. It could be internal. It could be external. And various people deal with their misery in different ways. Some people might try to hide it or conceal it. They never talk about it. They don't want you to know that they are miserable. They don't want to be seen as weak. They want to show that they are in control. That they have it all together. While they are completely miserable, they never want to show that to anyone else. On the outside, they look like they are okay, but they are dying on the inside. They are only pretending. And pride becomes the problem of trying to save face. There are others who will tell you that they are miserable. And they will tell you so that you feel sorry for them. They wallow in their misery and they use their pain in order to promote themselves. The same thing, it's pride. There are still others. And all of these are generalities and by no means exhaustive. But still others who are miserable and are bent on making the lives of other people miserable. Have you ever known someone like that? They live by the motto, misery loves company. And so if they have to be miserable, then everyone else around them has to be just as miserable as they are. Are you in any of these groups? Are you a combination of any of these groups? I do believe that there is a common denominator between these groups of all people, no matter where you fall. People want out of their misery. They want to exit misery. They want to leave it behind. But many, many, many people don't know the way out. They are lost in a maze of darkness and they run into dead end after dead end after dead end with no way out. How is it that I can make such a blanket statement and say that people are struggling with misery and are miserable? Because I've just summarized biblical teaching. The church over centuries has developed tools to help people grasp and understand biblical teaching. We have sought ways to find or to, or to make the truth more memorable so that people not only get it but retain it. And often this has been done through catechisms. Catechisms are a series of questions and answers that lead people into biblical doctrine. And any good catechism, like the Westminster Catechism, or the Heidelberg Catechism, or the Children's Catechism that we use with our children, all begin in the same place. They all begin with the state of man. And the question goes like this. What effect did the sin of Adam have on all mankind? The answer, all mankind are born in a state of sin and misery. This is how I can make this blanket statement. Because all people are born in a state of sin and misery. And it is that sinful state that is the most miserable of states. And that's the state that everyone begins in. No one gets to skip that state. No one gets to get around that state. That little baby that you hold in your arms, that one, he or she is born in a state of sin and misery. And notice how these two work together. It's that state of sin that leads to misery. You can think of all the reasons 
you might experience misery in this world. But reason number one, the primary reason you know and experience misery is because of your sin. There is no one else to blame. No person or circumstance, no event. You are born into a state of sin. You are a sinner. You are responsible for your sin. And your sin is cosmic treason against a holy and righteous and infinite God. It cuts you off and completely separates you from Him. Being born in a state of sin and misery is bad, bad news. It is darkness. It leads to despair. It causes mourning and agony and hurt and severe pain. But the utter and complete badness of the bad news makes the good news shine forth all of the brighter. And the good news is there is a way out. There is an escape. There is a rescue. There is an exodus. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer to how you can exit out of your sinful nature, how you can exit out of total and complete misery is found in the Word of God and is found right here in the book of Exodus. And it is the trajectory of all of the book of Exodus that serves as the backbone or the spine, if you will, of this great and glorious gospel message. So the trajectory of Exodus serves as a backbone, an outline, if you will, of the whole gospel message. So where are we going? Here's the outline for the book. Follow along there in your outline. The outline of the whole book of Exodus, this is the trajectory that we will be following as we go throughout this book book. First, delivered by God. That's the first 18 chapters. This is God's deliverance. Delivered by God. How the people of God are delivered by God. Then next, the verses or chapters, excuse me, 19 through 24, dedicated to God. And how God desires his people to be completely and utterly devoted to him. And so dedicated to God. And then finally, Chapters 25 through 40 is dwelling with God. What does it look like to dwell with God? And all of the instructions regarding the tabernacle and God dwelling among his people. You notice that is the trajectory of the gospel. Delivered by God, dedicated to God, and then finally dwelling with God. That's where we're going now. Why are we going there? Why? What's the point of Exodus? Why is this book important to us and why should we listen to it? Why should we understand it? Well, first, to read the whole Bible better. To read the whole Bible better. There is one commentator who says the Exodus is the only event that ever happens in the Bible. His argument is that the Exodus is what happens over and over and over and over and over again. And in fact, as you read the Bible... You encounter Exodus and Exodus language everywhere. Joshua, Psalms, Isaiah, John, Revelation. Exodus language is everywhere. As we go through this, and as you continue to read your Bible, you're going to see Exodus everywhere in God's Word. So if we want to be better readers of the Bible, we need to understand the book of Exodus. Because you're going to find it, you're going to come into it, you're going to run into it everywhere. Also, why Exodus? The second reason, to understand salvation better. To understand salvation better. The Exodus account in this book is the whole course of salvation in miniature form. The whole course of salvation in miniature form is found in the book of Exodus. And this is crucial and important because I believe there is great confusion today about what salvation is. How do I know if I am saved? What does it mean to be saved? And so to clear away confusion of salvation, what better book to go to than Exodus, which is the whole course of salvation in miniature form. So we want to read the whole Bible better. We want to understand salvation better. And then third, to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Why Exodus? To see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 24, 27. 
or what it says about Jesus in Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That's Exodus. It's included in that. Beginning with Moses, Exodus is one of the five books that we attribute to Moses as the author of. And so even here, we see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Even here, we cannot get around that Jesus Christ permeates the whole Bible, that everything points to him. In fact, I believe we are of people, of all people, most to be pitied if we don't see the glory of Jesus Christ in, in Exodus. I almost said in the gospel of Exodus. That's <laughs> true, isn't it? In Exodus. That's why I love the Old Testament. Because it all points to Jesus, and he is in the culmination of that. All of these promises, everything is pointing to him. And so I pray that we see Jesus clearly in the book of Exodus. Because who else would we rather want to draw attention to? Moses? Moses had great faith. Moses was a faithful servant of God. But Moses didn't even get into the promised land. We want to be able to glorify Jesus even in the book of Exodus. So let's begin at the very beginning, the very first word of the book of Exodus, but the very first word that you cannot see. It's often not even translated in our English versions, but it's a very important word. It should be there, and what word could be so important that they would leave it out? It's the word and. The, the first verse of Exodus reads quite literally this way, and, and these are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Why is that so important? Why would I draw our attention to this word and that's right there at the beginning of the book of Exodus? It's important because... It tells us that this book is not primarily a new book, rather it's a continuation of a book. This story has already begun, and this story is part of a greater story that began in Genesis 1.1. And it tells us that if we want to be good and astute readers of Exodus, we have to know Genesis. This book builds on what has already been told to us. And one verse from Genesis that not only steers the book of Exodus, but also steers the whole course of the Bible, is that verse, Genesis 3.15. It's here where after Adam and Eve have fallen, God comes to curse the serpent who deceived the woman. But with God's curse of the serpent comes hope. Genesis 3.15, we receive the gospel in seed form as God says this, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the conflict, the cosmic conflict that has raged on down throughout the ages on one side, it is the offspring or the seed of the serpent. It is those who are children of the devil, Satan, and Satan himself, who are against the offspring of the seed of the woman. And so this seed is raging against God because it is through this seed of the woman whom God will use to give the final skull-crushing blow to the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will bruise the serpent's head. What good news. And yet this cosmic conflict continues to rage on. And when we come to Exodus, we are not to forget that. We are not to lose sight of it. It is still to be in the forefront of our minds, just as we know the conflict now is not yet completely over and so what do we need as this cosmic conflict rages on? We need assurance. We need confidence. 
we need hope. Exodus chapter 1 gives us assurance, even though these are some dark times in the life of the nation of Israel. So what can we learn from chapter 1 this morning? Well, we can learn, number one, when the cosmic conflict rages, be assured God's promise to restore creation blessing will come to pass. God's promise to restore creation blessing will come to pass. You remember this slogan? Be kind and rewind. My kids will never know what that means. It's crazy. They'll never know of having to wait while the cassette tape or the VHS tape is going. But this is exactly what Exodus does at the very beginning. It rewinds, rewinds the script, takes us back to Genesis 46, verse 8, which similarly says the very same things. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came to Egypt. So Moses has rewound the script to Genesis 46, verse 8. He says, remember, these are the people that have come down. These are my people. Descendants of Israel, descendants of Jacob even, that have come down to Egypt. And it highlights the Hebrew title for this book. The Hebrews don't call this book Exodus. They call this book Names. Names, because that's the first major word that you come to. These are the names of the sons of Israel. And it's important because the names are what established the people's identity. They had to remember their past, where they had come from, who they were, because it was their past that informed their present situation. So that's why Moses rewinds to the past. He says, remember the past. Remember who you are. Remember where you came from because the past is going to inform the present. But more than this, it is the God who is at the forefront of the past that is also to be the forefront of the present. Remember how God has cared for you? Remember how He took care of you, remember how he was there for you. It meant that how God had dealt with them in the past meant they knew what they could expect from God in the present situation. This is the God who is the creator, the holy God, the gracious God, the God who built the house of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the God who started with all of those women who were barren, who now has brought forth this great family. And we see these sons of Jacob listed. The first six sons being the sons who were born through Leah. The seventh one being the second born of Rachel. Dan and Naphtali were the sons born through Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah. And the last two, Gad and Asher, were those born through Leah's maidservant, Zilpah. These were the households that left the land where Abraham was and came down to Egypt, descended down into Egypt. And the other son, the one son, the firstborn of Rachel, is not yet listed. That is Joseph. and He didn't come down because he was already in Egypt. Again, we see that at the end of the book of Genesis. He was already there in Egypt, Joseph and his family. And then it says, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. And it actually refers to these descendants as being those who come from Jacob's loin or from Jacob's thigh. Moses does something very strategic here. He says, remember that loin? Remember that thigh? That draws our mind back to that time when Jacob wrestled with God. And what did God do then? He touched his hip socket, put it out of place, his loin or his thigh. And now we're remembering, this is the one this is the family that came from Jacob's line, the one who has prevailed with God, who has striven with God and prevailed. This is this family. This is Israel. And remember how God had blessed Jacob and his family. 
70 most likely being the number of all of the males of the family who entered into Egypt. But even more so, I think this 70 has an important place in salvation history because 70 was the number of nations that came out of Noah. So Noah, in six through, Genesis 6 through 9, we read about him and the ark. And him and his family were brought through the floods, or the flood. And then there were 70 nations that came from Noah and from his sons. And as we see, these 70 nations, something happens. They have this trajectory of going down, 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 down. They sin more and more and more until you get to the Tower of Babel. These people who want to make a name for themselves. I think what Moses now is doing, he's saying these are 70 people who are coming out. And unlike though those 70 nations who descended into greater sin, these 70 are going to represent a new humanity. These 70 people are going to bring my creation blessing to the whole world. And that's what's happening, isn't it? Joseph died, all of his brothers of that generation died, but what? But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. It's basically saying the world is teeming with them. The land is teeming with them, and it all draws our minds back to creation. That creation mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And so let my blessing fill the whole world. And that's what's happening now through Jacob and through his descendants. They are the ones who are experiencing this creation blessing and they are the ones who are going to bring this creation blessing into the land. And it's through this blessing that God is fulfilling his promises, isn't he? God had promised to Abraham, Abraham, look up at the sky. See all of those stars? Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars. And Abraham, and through the offspring of Abraham, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's what God had promised to do. Creation blessing. And he's doing it. He's bringing it to pass. There is no mistaking it. This is the Lord God fulfilling his covenant promises. And it is the certainty with how God has fulfilled his promises in the past that gives us certainty for the future. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look back to this past. Look back to this God and let him inform your present situation. And what is our connection to this past? This is the connection. This past is our past because we are connected to Jesus Christ. He is our connection to this past. He is the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the one who ultimately will restore the creation blessing to the whole world. It is through him and through his rule and through his reign that the glory of God will cover the globe as the waters cover the sea. God is sovereign and faithful over the chaotic past. God is sovereign and faithful over the chaotic present. And all of his promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. God's promises are designed to bring you to Jesus. In Him, our past and our present and our future meet with complete assurance and confidence. So, let the past and how God has worked inform the present today. Number two, when the cosmic conflict rages, be assured God's plan for creation cannot be thwarted. God's plan for creation cannot be thwarted. We come to the problem now, don't we, in our text. Everything's looking great. Israel is growing, multiplying. The land is teeming with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph had long 
been gone and dead most likely for many years. And it's significant that this new king did not know Joseph. Because not knowing Joseph meant that he did not know Joseph's God. When you read the account of Joseph in Genesis, Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians are recognizing this is Joseph's God who is doing this. But now here is a new king. He doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know Joseph's God. And so he does not know God's greatness or power. He has no respect for God's sovereignty whatsoever. And whatever this new king did not know about God, God was about to make himself known. Here is a new king, but not the king. Here is a pretend king, a play king, a king enraptured in his own land of make-believe who would not recognize the true and sovereign king. Rather, he would stand against the true king. And that's just what he tries to do. He tries to undo God's blessing. The sons of Israel have grown to be many and mighty, and the king sees them as a threat. He fears, and he leads his people to fear the sons of Israel, that they will leave them, they will join their enemies, and assist their enemies, and fight against Egypt. Pharaoh says he fears that they will ascend out of the land. And how we know they will ascend out of the land. So to overcome this fear, Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites. They set, he sets taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens upon the people. And they oppress the sons of Israel with this awful, horrendous work. They made them ruthlessly work as slaves. They made their lives bitter. The new king, Pharaoh, made the lives of the Israelites miserable. But all of this only ensured that they would eventually be the enemies, the enemies of God. And there was a struggle going on here. It's a struggle for glory. The Israelites were made to build store cities for Pharaoh. The last time we saw construction of a city was Genesis 11, back in the Tower of Babel. It was man trying to make a name for himself rather than honoring the name of God. And so even Pharaoh's words are the same as the men of Babel. Come, let us. That's the same thing they said in Babel. Come, let us. And so now the Israelites are forced to work to give glory to Pharaoh when true honor and glory is supposed to go to God and God alone. And it puts before us this question. Who were they supposed to serve? Who is worthy of their service? Are they supposed to worship and serve Pharaoh? Or are they supposed to serve and worship God? And this is an issue of identity. Are they Pharaoh's slaves? Does Pharaoh own them or are they God's? Are they God's people? And while the new king Pharaoh does not know Joseph, while he enslaves the sons of Israel and makes their lives miserable, it might seem that he's in control. But his plan is completely thwarted, isn't it? The more and more he afflicts them, the more and more he oppresses them, the more and more the people multiply, the more they are blessed by God. And isn't, the way, isn't this the way it always is for God's people? The more and more they are persecuted, the more intense the persecution is, the more they prosper and flourish and grow. This is the way it is in the church. Even as Matthew Henry has stated, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Oppression, affliction, persecution, bring it on. You are not going to stop or overcome God's people. They are going to grow and multiply and become greater and stronger. And their dread is only going to increase because they see how great God is in increasing his people. And so while Pharaoh tries to thwart God and God's blessing, God 
ironically, thwarts Pharaoh's plan. Pharaoh believes himself to be so smart and so wise. In fact, he was thought of as a god among the people of Egypt. You see what he says here. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, with these sons of Israel. That word shrewd could also be wisdom. But this is not godly wisdom. This is worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is oppressive. It inflicts pain and misery upon others. Before God, it is utter foolishness. As Pharaoh stands there before the people, heralding the fact that he has a wise plan, he has no idea what a wise plan really is. Do you want to know what a wise plan looks like? God has a wise plan, a plan that is far greater and far more glorious. Pharaoh's plan looks nothing like wisdom. In fact, it looks like utter foolishness. Here is wisdom. What wisdom once devised a plan where all of our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect lamb that suffered, bled, and died. That is God's wisdom. That is God's plan. And that plan will not be thwarted. The heavy burdens that were placed upon the sons of Israel are like those heavy burdens of sin and death. And it's that heavy burden which enslaves us. But what do we know about being rescued from our heavy burdens? There is one who is to come who will lift those burdens off of our backs, who will take those heavy burdens upon himself. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall do what? He shall bear their iniquities. This is all according to God's plan. Just like he had planned Israel to be afflicted for 400 years. It was salvation that was to come out of suffering. Listen to Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This was God's plan for his people. 400 years of slavery in Egypt, 400 years of being afflicted and depressed. 400 years of agony and suffering. There were some people that that's all that they knew in their whole entire life. When you go through suffering, do you ever question, where's God? That have been a question that these Israelites asked. God, where are you with all of the suffering, with all of the affliction? God, you look so distant. You look so far away. Where are you, God? Now would be a good time to come to our rescue. Now would be a good time to come to our aid. Dear brother, dear sister, God's plan will never be thwarted. It will always take place exactly as he planned. And if his plan for you is suffering, there is good news. Salvation comes out of suffering. God saves, God rescues out of suffering and difficulty and pain. God comes to your aid when you think there is no aid. That's where God is. Number three this morning. 
when the conflict rages. Be assured, God prevails over the anti-creation forces of death. I probably made up that word, but it sounds really good. Number three, God prevails over the anti-creation forces of death. Here in the final paragraph of chapter one, we see (laughs) Pharaoh realizes his plan isn't working out so great. The more that they oppress the people, the more they grow. So we need to do something different, something else. Pharaoh now begins even more to show his true colors. Pharaoh is anti-God, he is anti-creation, and he is anti-life. To put it succinctly, he is the seed of the serpent. And he enlists two Hebrew midwives to do his dirty work of death for him. He orders them to murder and kill the sons of Israel as they exit the womb. It could have perhaps even been so duplicitous that they might have been able to make it look as if the child was stillborn if they did it the right way. But Pharaoh orders these midwives. As the woman is there on the birth stool, she's giving birth. If it's a son, you shall kill him. Why just the male children? Why not all the children? Well, first, the the men would be those who would grow up and be enlisted as soldiers, and particularly who could be enlisted as soldiers by their enemies. Second, it would be easier to assimilate Hebrew women into the Hebrew culture than if there were Hebrew men. But even third, Pharaoh being the seed of the serpent is directly attacking the seed of the woman and directly attacking God's plan of redemption. And so he orders all of the male children to be killed, but there is just one problem for Pharaoh with his second plan. The women he enlisted feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, who claimed to be God. And their fear meant that they had to obey God rather than man. They could do nothing else. They would not obey the seed of the serpent. And oh, that we would be those people who would fear God more than men. And that we would learn what it is to fear him with joy and rejoicing. The fear of God is always the right response, no matter what the circumstance. And so these midwives let the male children live Pharaoh was not pleased with the the midwives, so he confronts them. Why have you done this? The midwives answer, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. We can't get there fast enough. We can't get there quick enough. In fact, some people had estimated that with this population explosion of the Israelites, there could have been five or so children born each day. So if there are two midwives having to get to five different deliveries every single day, that's, that's every day. I mean, that's not a break either. That's just kind of an averaging it out. Some people right here would say there's a moral dilemma. Because right after it says that they, they, they feared God, some would say that the midwives are lying to Pharaoh here. How can God give approval to this lie? In fact, we read in Exodus 20, thou shalt not bear false witness. So some think there is a moral, um, a moral dilemma here. How can these Hebrew women lie to Pharaoh and then, verse 20, God deal well with the midwives or show favor to the midwives because of what they have done and what they have said? Is God looking approvingly upon this lie? Well, I think it's fairly easy to get around this quandary. And it's simply this. The text does not say that the women lied. 
There is no explicit mention of deceit. Why should we assume that they lied? Why don't we assume that they were telling the truth? Could it be that the Hebrew women were vigorous and did deliver before they were able to get there? That's an absolute possibility. So I don't think there's any reason for us to assume that these women are lying. I think rather we should be assuming they told the truth. They told Pharaoh what actually happened. And look at how God blesses these two women for their fear of him, for their actions, and for what they have done. God blesses them in two ways. First, he names them in his word. Shifra and Puah, these are their names. And their names are being spoken today. They're spoken throughout history. And there is a contrast here. In the book of Exodus, we never know the name of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a title, like king or ruler. We never know the Pharaoh's names. They remain nameless. They are not worthy of making their names known. But these women who stood up for God and for his people and obeyed God and feared him, their names are written down for us to remember and know. So he blessed them by saying, these are the names I want you to remember of these women who feared me. And also, God blesses them by giving them families. You notice the contrast here again between Pharaoh and God. Pharaoh is hell-bent on destroying families, on wiping people out, on killing people. And what does God do? God is intent on building up families, giving people families, bringing life into people's lives. God, the great king, builds their families and so blesses them. But this isn't the only time we read about someone killing babies in the Bible, is it? Turn over for a moment to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse six, 16. <clears throat> Matthew 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. Here it is again now with Jesus Christ, another false king, another seed of the serpent hell-bent on murdering and destroying all for fear of the seed of the woman, all for fear of the one who would redeem, who would be the true king, sovereign over all. And then one more time, as Eric read for us, Revelation chapter 12, if you turn there, verses 1 through 6, and the great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten hordes, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. There is Satan, the devil, as if he's standing before the woman. He is the evil midwife ready to kill that male child, but the male child escapes. It is caught up immediately to God. You see a pattern? Exodus 1, Matthew 2, Revelation 12. These are all connected in a few ways. I believe the dots are pretty clear. But let's connect them together for one moment as we end. We'll look at something first more general and then more specific. But first, the seed of the serpent is a murderer 
and he kills babies. The seed of the serpent is a murderer, and he kills babies, and we must not and cannot turn a blind eye to that. We must never give approval of that or support that or support those who do in any way. I'm not just talking about murder outside of the womb. I'm also talking about murder inside of the womb. This is the anti-creation force of death that is at work in our world and in our country and in our culture, and I don't want to have anything to do with the seed of the serpent when he shows his ugly and grotesque and murderous ways. I want to be associated with the seed of the woman. I want to be associated with Christ, the one who is the rescuer, the one who saves, the one who does not take life, but the one who gives his life so that he might give life to all those who follow and put their faith and trust in him. We are the people of the light and the people of the life. And this is not political, this is biblical. And it's time we stand up to the anti-creation forth of death and say, no, we will not support that. That is not right and it should not be happening. Second, now more specifically, the seed of the serpent has sought for a way to consume or devour the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ. But praise be to God that he was not able to devour Christ. Christ was caught up to the throne of God. But the devil is still raging. He is still seeking those whom he may devour. And he would like to make war upon us. Defeat us. He would decimate us, given the chance... And so, church, we must wake up. Do not be lulled into a stupor or into apathy or fall asleep. The seed of the serpent is alive and well on planet Earth. His rage, though, we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. He is the liar. He does not hold the truth. The truth is found in no one but Jesus Christ and him alone. And so we will stand upon the truth of Jesus Christ. And we will be the church who is the pillar and buttress of the truth of Jesus Christ. And so we will be on guard. And we will fear God. And we will rest assured that the devil, Satan, and the seed of the serpent will be completely and utterly vanquished and conquered. And how is he conquered? He's conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Let us fight in the cosmic battle with the testimony of Jesus Christ upon our lips, fighting back the anti-creation forces of death and saying, no, we believe in life that comes from Jesus Christ and him alone. Is that the life that you know today? Is that the life that is abundant life in you? Is that the life that is sustaining you through this conflict and through this life? Because that is the life that brings you out of misery. That accuser is thrown down. And listen to Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For, because they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And shorter every day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And as we begin our journey through this book of Exodus, Father, we pray that your word would instruct us and teach us and change us and show us with, clear, with clarity the way out. 
and that we would know great assurance in the midst of this conflict. Father, if there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus Christ, who does not know the kind of life that we talked about, would they today repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and put their faith and trust in Him and in Him alone, confessing that He is Lord, that He died on the cross to save us from our sins and rose again from the dead on the third day. May we be those as your church who bear the testimony of Jesus Christ upon our lips and would, who, what, would we be those who love not our life even unto death, but would we love our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.